Today's Bible reading is on page 1148 and we're reading from 1 Corinthians 8 verses 1 to 13. So 1 Corinthians 8 verses 1 to 13. Now about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a God. And since their conscience is weak, It is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, Come on, people, it's a long weekend. It's good to be alive, it's good to be manly. Uh, It's great to be together. Now, we have prayed, so we may as well get straight to work. And uh, one of my very earliest memories of life in general was walking down the street, a city street in central Brisbane, with my grandfather, who was a beautiful, wonderful man. And uh, we walked past um, one of the city pubs, and I smelt that kind of yeasty, hoppy smell as this pub was packed with... um, workers enjoying an afternoon brew and I remember asking him what's that smell and he turned to me and he said without any hint of mirth or humor or irony he said that's the smell of naughty man's drink (laughs) and I think um, I mean you look objectively at what uh, alcoholism and uh, drunkenness and drunk driving cost our country and you have to agree that he's right on the mark like at least you know at some level but I filed that, you know, naughty man's drink away in my mind, my young and impressionable mind, and I had no reason to think about it again for years. Uh, my family were all brought up kind of Brisbane Baptists, and so I don't recall seeing a drop of liquor in our house growing up. My mum hated the stuff. She still hates the stuff. She didn't even use it for cooking. I didn't have to kind of Christianly confront the issue at all uh, until much later into my teenage years where I saw uh, not only my non-Christian friends drink beer, and maybe that was okay because maybe they were naughty men, right? Uh, But also my Christian friends enjoying a brew once they'd turned 18. 
And then I read in Psalm 104, where it says that God brings forth bread to sustain our bodies and oil to make our face shine and wine that gladdens our hearts. Or in 1 Timothy 4, where the Apostle Paul tells Timothy that everything God created is good and should be enjoyed if received with thanksgiving and used in its proper context. And in fact, in the very next chapter of 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul says to Timothy to stop drinking only water and drink a little wine for the sake of your health. I thought, man, was my grandfather wrong? I mean, surely he would have come across these verses after, you know, Decades of study and prayer. Was I not only allowed to enjoy a drink in appropriate amounts, but even encouraged to thank God for it? Did that mean that provided I didn't get rolling drunk, it was basically open season with this issue or an open bar? Was there anything else to consider? Hmm. Let's just park that to one side for a minute. What do you if you do what do you do if you're a Corinthian Christian? You've spent your whole life up until this point in time, up to the point of becoming a Christian, eating food at the temple where idols were worshipped, enjoying food that was sacrificed in those temples to those idols, because that was just a part of the fabric of the Corinthian social scene. I mean there were idols in those temples and the food you'd eat had been sacrificed to those idols in a ceremony. Uh, And then you shared it around in a meal afterwards that was very much like an ancient restaurant. Got a uh, a picture here. This is kind of a um, diagram, sorry guys, of an old school kind of temple, right? And so the the middle picture there is the aerial view. Picture at the bottom is kind of a side-on view. And so you can see these kind of rooms at the bottom here, the kind of lower level. They're all kind of like little dining rooms. Uh, And to have a, a look at this one, you can see there's like a central Uh, kind of altar or open space and then all the way around the edge there was these little booths kind of like an American diner and you'd sit in these sort of um, little booths and you'd sit around the grill and this uh, meat that had been sacrificed to the idol would be cooked on it and you'd kind of eat it and enjoy it together um, like an ancient restaurant. So if you're a Corinthian what do you do? Like now that you've become a Christian do you keep up that practice? Or do you necessarily have to withdraw from that practice? Are you free to enjoy that feature of culture and society? Or do you have to withhold yourself? And on what basis do you make that choice? What things do you need to think about? You see, it's a very tricky matter for them. Uh, Because on the one hand, if you eat the, the idol meat, does that mean you somehow sanction or approve of idolatry? If you don't eat the meat, are you kind of saying that, well, you actually think that this idol has got a bit of power to it, that there's some kind of reality to it? See, it's actually quite a tricky question. And I know that the, just the concept of food sacrificed to idols kind of seems a bit remote to us. But for the Corinthian Christians, it was a massive question. What do I do as a Christian? Am I free or not free to eat or drink? And on what basis do I work it all out? And uh, though this issue might seem remote at first glance, the interconnected ideas of knowledge, of love, and of freedom are totally current for us today. Because what the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians back then in chapter 8 is going to help shape what we do with these interconnected ideas of knowledge and love 
and freedom. So listen up, folks, as we nut this stuff out together under two headings for today. The first heading, knowledge puffs up. And then secondly, love builds up. Knowledge puffs up and love builds up. So firstly for today, oops, it says there, knowledge puffs up. Let's go straight to the text of 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I hope you've got it in your Bibles open in front of you on page whatever Justin said. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 1, where the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, Now, about food sacrificed to idols. They seem to have raised the issue in a previous correspondence. About food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. Knowledge puffs up. And uh, look, I can imagine as you just read verse 1, now about food sacrificed to idols, you just feel a bit relieved. You know, you're like, ah, it's a relief to have moved through all that stuff about sex and marriage and divorce and singleness that was just personally intense and Food sacrificed to idols doesn't affect me. I can relax. (sighs) As if. I mean, whether or not it's personally intense or not, it's totally relevant because Paul moves directly from the presenting issue, food sacrificed to idols, and he starts talking about knowledge, and he starts talking about love, and he doesn't seem all that positive about knowledge, at least as far as it concerns these Corinthians. So what is he talking about? Why is he negative about knowledge well if you read the chapter it seems like some of the corinthians they looked at this whole issue of idol feasts that part of corinthian culture eating foods in the temples as part of some religious ceremony devoted to an idol and they thought it is not a problem it's just food of course we're free to get into that absolutely entirely but the subtext of the passage is really paul saying On what basis, dear Corinthians, have you come to that conclusion? And it's as if they're saying, well, it's on the basis of knowledge, isn't it? Uh, On our knowledge about God. I mean, they look at these little things, statues carved out of wood and stone, and they say, well, it's just a little statue carved out of wood and stone. Or to use the language of verse 4, again, have a look in the Bibles in front of you. We know an idol is nothing at all in the world. Nothing. There's just one God, our God, right? These silly little things, they're no match for the one true God. And and in verse 5 and 6, even if some of our fellow Corinthians think these statues are little g gods or little l lords, we know they're not. There's just one capital G God, our God. And there's one capital L Lord, Jesus Christ. I mean, we know that. We all possess this knowledge, don't we? Surely that's the situation. And so some of the Corinthians, kind of armed, militant with that knowledge, trot off to the temple, join in the idol feasts, and eat freely with their Corinthian friends. And I'm guessing that that included both believers and unbelievers. Surely we're right, Paul, that this little thing is nothing. And the Apostle Paul agrees with them entirely, except for on all the points where they're completely wrong. And as it turns out, there's a couple of those. The first problem really is that the knowledge they have is just, is just partial knowledge. 
Uh, certainly they're right, little things carved out of wood and stone are nothing. They're not gods, they're not lords, but it doesn't mean that they're safe playthings either, that are completely neutral. And in a couple of chapters' time, chapter 10, Paul will tell us that demonic power is at work in the worship of idols and he's going to there outrightly forbid them from joining in. But he wants to leave that kind of prohibition till later and so we will too because he wants to focus on another principle first. Their knowledge is only partial knowledge. It says in verse 2, those who think they know something don't yet know as they ought to know. They think they know it all in other words but it's just part of the story. And uh, really the second problem is connected and that is thinking that the part that you know is the whole, the full picture, it's obviously led to personal arrogance on those Corinthians' behalf. We all possess knowledge, they say. Apostle Paul says, yeah, but knowledge puffs up. (laughs) Love builds up, but uh, with you guys, knowledge puffs up. And that idea of um, being puffed up is quite a graphic one, I think. Quite visual. I mean, here's a picture of a uh, little fishy. She's <laughs> uh, just swimming around, doing her thing. By the way, I don't know if fish have genders, do they? I'm not sure. But she's a female fish, I think. They do? There you go. Doing her thing. And I think if you look closely, she's even smiling. Is that right? I think so. Here's a picture of the same fish. Like, probably not the exact same fish, but, you know, same fish. All puffed up. You look at that, you think, it looks ridiculous out of proportion, can't even see properly. There's not much good you can say about it at all. And you know, this is the picture that the Apostle Paul gives to describe those who ground the conduct of their whole Christian life purely on the basis of what they think they know. They think they know something, but they only know a part of it. But thinking that the part they know is the whole, it makes them arrogant, puffed up, out of proportion, and unable to see properly. Now, it really is worth us working out what he's not saying, because he's not saying that knowledge is bad in itself. He's just saying that it's bad by itself, not anti-intellectual by any means. And the Apostle Paul would know better than we do that the first commandment is to love God with all your soul and all your heart and all your mind. Or your mind as well. I wonder if we forget that part of the way that we love God is with all our mind. To be growing in our understanding of Him. Our knowledge of His ways. A deep familiarity with His Word. It's easy to get lazy on this front. You know, one of the reasons why Bruce and I have decided we put a few less verses up on the screen is because we just realized we were discouraging everyone from even having the Bible open in front of us during the sermon. Surely in an age where uh, our secular society looks at us Christians not just as this kind of quaint historical relic that's easy to dismiss, but as a potential force of evil that needs to be resisted with militancy, Surely we need to be engaging our minds more than ever. So don't misunderstand what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He's not saying knowledge is unimportant. He's not saying it's insignificant. But he is saying that it's got its limitations. What we know is partial. What we know is limited. And by itself, it's going to give us limited success as a guide for Christian conduct because it can so easily lead to arrogance. We all possess knowledge, say the Corinthians. Yep, 
says Paul, but in any case, knowledge puffs up. And so if not knowledge alone, if that's not a great guide for Christian conduct, what is? Well, you read the verse earlier. Love is. Love is. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And really, knowledge puffs yourself up, but love builds up others. And so that is the second point for today. We're going to unpack how that worked for the Corinthians, and then we're going to think about how it works for us today. So verse 1, remember the Corinthians say, we all possess knowledge that the little idols are nothing. But in verse 7, the Apostle Paul corrects them and says, you know what, not everyone possesses this knowledge. At least that intellectual information hasn't kind of seeped into the deep springs and wells of the souls of all the Corinthian Christians just yet. There are some guys and they have been just so caught up in the culture and practice of idol worship for so many years, they just don't see the steak as a piece of meat. They just can't see it. It remains in their conscience an off-limits meal. Just, just wrong, just sinful to eat. Their conscience is tender. In fact, the word the apostle uses is weak. You see it there in verse 7, verse 9, verse 10, verse 11, and verse 12. You Corinthian Christians might think you're free. But in these other guys' kind of unknowledgeable minds, it's still off limits for whatever reason. Maybe they've just concluded that it's sinful for them, even if it's not sinful generally. Now, if they see you eating in an idol's temple, won't they be emboldened, encouraged, persuaded, pressured, tempted? Literally, the word is built up, same word as in verse 1, built up to join you in an activity that they think is idolatrous and sinful. So well done, you, with your knowledge. (laughs) It's led a brother or a sister to sin, to act against their own conscience, tender though it might be. And maybe it's even led them to a life, like it's kind of sent them back into a life of idolatry and idol worship. I mean, it wouldn't be that great a leap, would it? Seeing as you're already there in the temple. And so this weak brother, it says in verse 11, this weak sister, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. Notice even more, if you cause a fellow Christian to sin against their conscience or to fall back into idolatry or whatever the sin is, well, they sin, obviously. But so do you, says verse 12. When you wound a sister's conscience, you sin against her and you sin against God. I mean, well done indeed. Look at all you can do with that knowledge you possess. So very clever. Cause a brother to sin against his conscience. Maybe make him fall back into idolatry. And you sin against him. And you sin against God too. (laughs) Amazing. You're amazing. The uh, Apostle Paul has got more than one thing to say on this issue of idolatry. He sees it as an evil from which all believers must flee because of its association with demons. I mean, that's chapter 10, so we'll get there. But his first point right here in chapter 8 is that Christian love means that in such matters, 
those so-called strong Christians must act in consideration for those so-called weak ones. And that really is how he ends the whole section. Have a look at verse 13. Therefore, he says, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I'll never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Did you notice the lengths that he's going to go to? He won't just not go to the temple, but not have meat. He won't even just not go to the temple. He'll never eat meat again. If that spares a fellow Christian from falling, never eat meat again. He's going vegetarian. That's how you know he really loves them. And you know it's love because it builds others up rather than pulling them down or rather than puffing him up. Uh, on the June long weekend, I normally go away with a friend of mine called Graham. Terrific guy. But he's uh, working for a church in Dubai. And uh, did you know this? That the, wall, the world's tallest building is actually in Dubai. It's called the Burj Khalifa. I've got a picture of it here. It is mental. It looks like it's science fiction, but that's real life. This thing is 828.9 metres tall. And it's kind of the centrepiece of kind of downtown Dubai. Uh, they built it in six years. Can you believe that? It's extraordinary. Real quick turnaround for something so big. And I guess that just requires real kind of thoughtfulness and a lot of hard work. But this idea of building up is central to what Paul is asking the Corinthians to do with others. Most of us are naturals at building ourselves up. Some of us are pretty adept at pulling others down. But the Apostle Paul's appeal to love one another is so that we might build others up in their faith. And this is the kind of picture that he has in mind. Now we've just seen what that means for the Corinthians. Some thought their knowledge kind of entitled them to eat at idle feasts. An idol is nothing, but Paul says, look, rather than knowledge alone, the way to work out how to live Christianly is love. In other words, he's happy to restrict or limit his own freedom, even if it means he becomes vego. I mean, that's a sacrifice, right? He's happy to do that if that will guarantee his behavior doesn't cause one other Christian to stumble, to fall back into sin, to sin against their own conscience, tender, uninformed though it might be. That's where the rubber hit the road for them. The question is, where does the rubber hit the road for us, 21st century Sydney-siders? Could it be when you smell the yeasty, hoppy smell of a sunset beer, perhaps? Are Christians free to drink alcohol? Certainly. We ought not to get drunk, but we're free to drink. Verse 8 within this passage reminds us that food doesn't bring us nearer to God and it can't push us further away from God. The Psalms tell us that wine is a gift from God. This same apostle explains that every gift from God is good and is to be enjoyed with thanksgiving. That's what we know. That's the knowledge that we all possess. But that's not all there is to it. Because before we pull the scab off beer or enjoy a glass of wine or whatever it is, we've always got to think how our actions might affect others. Does a brother or a sister of mine have some history with alcohol? Maybe it's a personal struggle with alcoholism. Maybe it's an association of alcohol with um, you know, violence or um, abandonment or some other grief that means they have just concluded it's off limits for them. 
such that my freedom to enjoy this gift from God not only, not only puts pressure on them or temptation or encouragement to do the same, but in so doing causes them to act against their conscience or perhaps to fall back into past patterns of sin. We used to have this um, TV commercial, um, kind of a drink-driving TV commercial, and the tagline was, Rethink the Third Drink. You know, as Christian people, love requires us to rethink every drink. Often, of course, we'll still have the freedom to enjoy that which God has given us. But if we never deny ourselves, if we're always insisting on our rights, if we're always uh, you know, insisting on our freedoms according to the knowledge that we have, rather than living according to love for a brother or sister, then most probably we will wound them and sin against God. See, this really is a very practical issue. Uh, many of you and I worked with um, teenagers for uh, a long, long time. And the topic of um, alcohol is a massive one. And we repeatedly talked to the teenagers about considering the effects of drinking upon others. But of course, we were a very small, quiet voice compared to the culture around us that says, once you're 18, just go for it. We would say, the law of the Lord says, don't get drunk. And the law of the land says, not until you're you're 18. But love instructs us to always consider others in the exercise of our freedom. But you see, the natural pull of law, uh, especially that law on human hearts, means they forgot about love. And as soon as they turned 18 and were legally entitled to drink, they did so without reservation. It's so frustrating. Year after year after year. Did you think about what your actions, the effect they might have upon others. I mean, I sound like a broken record. Do you know what? I reckon that as adults, we do the exact same thing. We just have a different law. Instead of a legal age, we kind of have this, the laws around drink driving. And so, very common. I'm driving tonight, so I'll just have one or none. Uh, I'm not driving tonight, so, you know, I don't have to worry about it, which in brackets means... I'm probably going to have too much. I mean, what a complete bunch of Pharisees we are. I only care about how much we drink if there's a chance we're going to get busted by the cops. What about the risk of wounding the conscience of a brother or sister for whom Christ died? What about the risk of emboldening them or tempting them to return to previous patterns of sin that had a grip over them? What about love? And although uh, the drinking of alcohol, uh, like in some ways it's an obvious point of application, isn't it? I don't know if you saw the research that came out this week. It said uh, highly educated women and working men are the biggest drinkers in our society. So it could be a, a big risk for a number of us here. But the more general principle of restricting our freedom for the sake of our brothers and sisters in verse 13 has got wide application, doesn't it? There there could be lots of other occasions in which we will decide to restrict our freedom or curtail our entitlements for the sake of other Christians so they don't stumble. It might not be just about what we eat or what we drink. It might be what we wear. It might be what we watch together. could be lots of different things. One of the catch cries of our society is, I'm free to do what I want. 
any old time. But in 1 Corinthians 8, the Apostle Paul really issues a remarkable challenge to that idea when he encourages us to restrict our freedom according to love for our fellow believers, especially those who might be considered weaker in one way or another. And he doesn't just ask us to do that. And he doesn't just ask the Corinthian Christians to do that. He modelled it before their very eyes. And we're going to hear more about that next week as Bruce takes us through chapter 9. You might think to yourself, where did he get this idea from in the first place? Where did he get the idea of restricting his freedom on the basis of love for others? Where might he have seen someone not insist upon their rights, but forego them for the sake of weaker ones? Where did he come up with all that? Well, you know, don't you? You know, you know these words from Philippians 2 in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to death on a cross." The Apostle Paul can ask us to restrict our rights on the basis of love. He can ask the Corinthian Christians to forego their freedom on the basis of love. He himself can model sacrificing his own entitlements for the benefit of others only because he has seen somebody do exactly that. The Lord Jesus, not presuming upon the entitlements of being in the very nature God, not insisting on all his heavenly privileges, but becoming a servant to us, becoming a man, becoming obedient to death on a cross. For us, weak little ones, weak who would otherwise have no hope for forgiveness, no relationship with God, no eternity to look forward to. And he did all that, that we might love God, and as verse 3 says, be known by God. Brothers and sisters, it really is no big deal for us to restrict a tiny amount of our personal freedom or entitlements for one another when somebody has done it so magnificently for us. We all possess knowledge, say the Corinthians, or some of us do, and those that do only possess it in half measure. It's incomplete, limited, certainly limited by itself as a guide for Christian living, but love for fellow believers, love that builds others up rather than puffing up ourselves, well, that's something. So in all things, let us love others more than we love our rights. Let us put their welfare before our freedoms and let us seek their good rather than enforcing our entitlements. Knowledge puffs up, true, but love builds up indeed. Isn't that right? 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we live in a culture that loves our rights and our personal entitlements. But in Jesus, we see somebody who gave up his rights and the privileges of heaven to serve us out of love for us, weak things that we are. Well, we would love to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus in our relationships with one another. So give us that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.